Time for Talk of the Town with Lisa Kay. It's time for a focus on ag. We have got on the phone with us Kent TC. Kent is the Senior Vice President and Farm Management Analyst from Minstar Bank. How are you doing, Kent? Well, doing great. We're talking a little bit uh, on this kind of a short week for some people about some of the things that are going on. I was driving and, and saw some of the corn. I said, that's definitely knee-high by 4th of July. Uh, is that kind of the saying and, and thing everywhere now? Well, knee-high by the 4th of July goes back probably two or three generations. That <laughs> was uh, back in an era, you know, when farmers planted corn a little later and the corn uh, didn't have the genetics that it does now. So the old theory was that if your corn was knee-high by the 4th of July, you'd have a harvestable crop. And whether it be for silage, for forage, or for uh, Something and in, in those days, most of the corn got fed to livestock on the farm, so uh, you didn't have uh, ethanol plants and all the export markets. So a lot different world back then. But uh, that that saying kind of stuck around through the generations. And reality today, uh, if your corn's only knee high on the Fourth of July in southern Minnesota, you're probably not looking at a, a record corn crop or a, <laughs> a bin busting yield. Yeah. And as you drive around, you see a lot of the corn, unless it was planted late or drowned it out, is probably uh, waist to shoulder high. Some of it's over, over head high. You know, when, of course, a lot depends on the person when you use that as a gauge. But a lot of the corn, because of the warm weather we've had, we've been running 25% ahead of normal growing degree units, uh, uh, has really pushed it along. And... Uh, you know, we're going to see corn tasseling and pollinating here within the next week to 10 days. And uh, so we're, we're, even though we planted a little later uh, because of the heat we had in June, we're really running kind of ahead of normal. Now, that the variable there, of course, is the rainfall amounts. But, uh, but you do see a lot of uneven fields, especially in uh, Blue Earth and Nicollet County and uh, some of Waseca County where... Uh, we had the heavy rains back in early May, the second week of May, where they had to replant parts of fields. So you, in the same field, you see corn that's uh, probably head high, ready to tassel, and then you got the corn that's uh, probably need a waist high that's got a ways to go because it was planted two to three weeks later. So you do have a lot of variation out there with the crops, uh, depending on when it was planted and uh, if they had to do some replant. Now, is there a drought in any of the areas? I'm sure that could affect the amount of growth. Yeah, you know, it's it's very interesting. A uh, lot of concern with drought uh, nationwide. Uh, actually, the uh, crop report that came out a week, or the drought monitor that came out a week ago, uh, uh, well, came out last Thursday, had 70% of the main growing area for corn in the United States uh, in some level of drought, including many areas of Minnesota, not our particular area of south-central Minnesota uh, or southwest Minnesota, but many other areas. And uh, the drought conditions are very intense in uh, states like Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, into Illinois. Uh, Illinois has some of their poorest crop conditions that they've had in a long time. Now, they, as I don't know, people that were watching the NASCAR race in Chicago yesterday mm-hmm. saw all the rain going on there. Now, I haven't seen any reports yet this morning. If that rain went downstate, they don't raise a lot of corn and soybeans in Chicago. But uh, 
Uh, certainly, as you, the southern two-thirds of Illinois is one of the major corn and soybean-producing areas of the United States, and also one of the driest areas going into this weekend. So it'll be interesting how much rain they got. I know they did have some severe storms with the deratio-type winds, the 70-mile-an-hour-plus winds that flattened some cornfields down through part of that region as well over the weekend. Uh, you know, you look at Minnesota, um, you know, the we were fortunate here um, a week ago this past weekend. Uh, most of uh, southern Minnesota got anywhere from a half inch to two inches of rain, which was very timely. Certainly those areas that got one to two inches were uh, in a little better shape. And then there was a few spotty showers that went through last week, mainly down in the I-90 corridor. Um, but even, you know, locally here, uh, even though we had about an inch of rain, uh, you could, with the heat over the weekend, again, the 90-degree temperatures, you start to see on some lighter fields, some corn starting to show some stress signs again. So certainly uh, getting another inch or two of rain here in the next week to 10 days would be very beneficial because as we talked off the top, uh, this corn is kind of at a critical stage where when you're in that tasseling pollination stage, you don't want to stress that crop because that's when you're really kind of setting your final uh, optimum yield levels. So uh, not only having adequate moisture, but a little cool, cooler weather like they're talking later this week is certainly beneficial. Uh, you know, so I, I think for the most part, uh, we aren't stressing our crop too bad yet as far as the drought. But certainly if, if we would miss the rains here in the next few days and uh, go back to some uh, really intense heat conditions uh, into mid-July, we could have some issues there. Soybeans uh, really responded well to the rainfall we had. Uh, uh, soybeans are a crop that, that they always say July is the corn crop uh, when the corn crop's made uh, with weather conditions and early August for soybeans. And uh, there's a lot of growing season to go yet, but certainly the corn. Uh, and I think down in Illinois and Indiana, parts of Iowa where it is really dry, Missouri, um, their corn's a little further along than ours. So getting the rain, if they got some this weekend or coming up here the next few days, is probably even more critical in those areas. So you're going to give us a little bit of a summary of the USDA reports that came out on June 30th. Where do you want to start there? Yeah. It's always kind of interesting, you know, farmers, the USDA reports come out and uh, it, it does tend to move the markets. And the one that comes out uh, the end of June is always a interesting one because you got two big reports that come out on June 30th. You got the grain stocks report that says how much grain is in storage across the country, both in grain elevators and on farms. And, of course, if you got more grain available, that tends to push prices down or less available pushes it up. And then they also come out with the first actual acreage report. Uh, they, they come out with a report in March by what farmers intend to plant, what they call the planting intentions report. And then they come out uh, uh, at the end of June with the uh, planted acreage report. And uh, this one was really a, kind of a shocker on the acreage because, according to the report, farmers uh, planted 4 million less acres of soybeans and 2 million more acres of corn this year uh, than they intended back in March. Now, you know, I, some people, you know, again, people look at their own area and they say, oh, how can that be? Uh, you know, farmers didn't change that much. But, again, this is nationwide, and I think 
we got to remember that states like North and South Dakota farmers are a lot more flexible on acreage. They don't put on as much fall uh, nutrients in the fall. They adjust acres more. And so acreage can change. And farmers, uh, if you go back to planting time, uh, the price scenario was very favorable for corn. To uh, Fertilizer prices came down from a year ago. So there was a lot of uh, optimism, I think, in the corn market. So I think, uh, you know, I'm not, obviously those acreage numbers can change as we go down the road. Uh, the next big thing will be when farmers actually report their acres to FSA offices here in July. And, uh, but it certainly moved the markets because there was 2 million more corn acres. So, uh, the corn market, uh, went down 30 to 40 cents a bushel and the soybean, uh, because that four million less soybean acres means less potential production. Uh, between Friday and today, the soybean market, both on the futures market and cash prices for fall delivery, are up about a dollar a bushel. Oh, so, okay. pretty big move in the market just from those reports. Uh, as far as the stocks reports, uh, you know that again is probably pretty farmer friendly because they actually. The stock numbers came in a little lower than the grain traders thought they're going to be. They're lower than they were a year ago. And again, if you got less supply out there, that can, especially on the local markets, with the di- difference between your local market prices and your Chicago Board of Trade prices, it keeps that basis level there a little tighter because supplies aren't quite as prevalent out there with uh, farmers still that have grain to haul into town. And now, more Talk of the Town with Lisa Kay. Focus on Ag Talk of the Town. Kent TC is joining us, Farm Management Analyst and Senior Vice President from MinStar Bank. Kent, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the struggles that we've had in a couple of different industries, both dairy and with our pork producers. It's been pretty tough for them. Yeah, well, we'll start with the dairy. Uh, you know, the dairy producers, uh, really, if you go all the way back, turn back the clock to 2020 when we went through COVID, uh, there's just been struggles for dairy farmers. Uh, Many of the months since 2020, they've been in negative profit margins. And, you know, part of that really, you know, we we all know that our our costs have gone up for everything we buy. Well, the same is true for farmers. Uh, Everything they buy on their farms, crop or livestock farmers, goes up and livestock producers have a lot of more ongoing costs a lot of times uh, that they need to have, especially dairy farmers, and those costs are higher and feed costs are higher because what we just talked about, the stronger grain prices. So that has kind of kept their break-even levels pretty high and the milk price that farmers are getting uh, has been below break-even a lot of times. And what we're seeing is uh, another round of... um, smaller to medium-sized dairy farmers that continue to go out of business. And uh, this has been an ongoing trend here for uh, the last couple of decades, but it gets spiked up every time we have these tight profit margins. And, you know, there, and again, it's uh, the dairy industry is very complex when you get to from the farm level to the processors, to the wholesalers, to the retail level. And, you know, I, I, at least what the, a general scenario is there's just an overproduction of milk and uh, of certain dairy products. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, until we sort through that, and of course, dairy, like everything else, relies a lot on exports. And if those export markets are a little softer, it hurts. 
Same thing's kind of true in the pork situation. Uh, we just had producing too much pork, and part of it is, uh, you know, producers have become more efficient, so they put they're able to put more pork on the market. And uh, again, uh, if we don't have the demand uh, exports and domestic demand, uh, then all of a sudden we get backed up on uh, total amount of pork. And uh, we have, you know, hopefully the numbers look a little more favorable, but of course. If uh, feed prices stay high, some of that uh, improvement will be eaten up by extra costs for the producers. But it does look a little more positive here for the pork industry going forward that will chew through some of those supplies. And generally, the domestic uh, consumption of pork tends to increase in the summer. And, of course, we started out the spring with a lot of cool weather before Memorial Day. But now when we've had warmer weather, usually when you go from Memorial Day to Labor Day is a high time of pork consumption. Everybody likes to <laughs> do the grilling. and uh, Got to have the one, pork one, chop one, on a stick. Yeah. So I guess we got to hope it improves. <laughs> and uh, for both the industries, we need those local producers out there. That's for sure. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about uh, the Proposition 12 law in California, how that's affecting us here and uh, the hows and whys of it? Yeah, you know, Proposition 12, um, that's kind of an interesting concept that passed uh, about five years ago in California. They have a lot of ballot initiatives in California, and this one was put on the ballot to require that all fresh pork sold in the state of California had to come be produced at the farm level uh, with by sows that had 24 square feet of uh, room in their uh, gestation barns, which are the mother sows, and that the mother sows couldn't be housed in the gestation crates. Now, those of us that are kind of from the Midwest know that those crates uh, are for safety of the sow, they're for comfort of the sow, they're for safety of workers working with pigs. They allow farmers to individually manage those sows, give them the right ration to uh, care for them when they're, uh, if they have Ill- disease problems or illness, they can individually care for them. Well, the voters of California didn't quite agree with that. And so what it means is the industry standards like 18 to 20 feet. So basically, if producers want to sell hogs into California, they got to add about 20 to 25 percent more space to their barns. Mm-hmm. Plus, they got to completely reconfigure their barns to comply with that and it's very expensive to do that and there's no guarantee they're going to get any more for the pork their hogs are selling to be processed into pork for california and plus they're if they leave their barns the same they're going to produce 25 percent less pigs so it's a very tough situation and then probably require more labor at the farm and the same in the processing plants and the este- California consumes 10 to 15% of the fresh pork in the United States, but they raise less than a half a percent. Hmm. So most of the pork they're getting in California comes from states like Minnesota and Iowa. So it's a real dilemma out there uh, on how the industry adjusts to this. Right. I suppose we'll be watching that moving forward. And then uh, if we move on to um, some deadlines that farmers need to be aware of, I know that uh, once you have the crops in the ground, <laughs> it's easy enough to think about the other things that are on the calendar. 
Well, the big one is for farmers to stay eligible for farm program payments. Uh, they need to certify their acres by July 17th at FSA offices. Now, they do have it set up where you can do it online now or you can go in person to your local FSA office. That same deadline is to certify your acres with your crop insurance agent to stay eligible for crop insurance payments. And certainly the weather issues we talked about earlier in the program, that's important this year. And then for any farmers that still uh, might have some eligibility for disaster payments, the ERP 2 payments uh, back from 2020 or 21, or the pandemic assistance payments from 2020, mainly livestock producers, uh, July 14th is the deadline to apply for that. All right. I won't be here for Farm Fest this year. I have a vacation scheduled at that point in time, but you've got the uh, the forums kind of are, are getting set up right now. Can you give us a little sneak preview? Yeah, Farm Fest will be August 1st, 2nd, and 3rd at its usual site near Redwood Falls by the Gilfell and Estate between Morgan and Redwood Falls. And we're really excited. The middle day of Farm Fest on Wednesday, August 2nd in the morning, we're going to have a U.S. Uh, House of Representatives Ag Committee listening session on the new Farm Bill. Uh, the chairman, G.T. Thompson, and several members from across the country from the House Ag Committee will be here for that. So that'll be really exciting. And that afternoon, uh, Governor Tim Walls and several state commissioners will join some legislative leaders to uh, discuss state policy issues. Uh, the first morning, we're going to have some top USDA officials on August 1st uh, present. And that afternoon, we're going to talk about what's uh, really catching a lot of news in agriculture uh, Climate smart uh, ag uh, policies and practices. We got a great panel for that. And then, of course, the third day is always the Farm Family Recognition Program, and uh, they'll name the Woman Farmer of the Year on Thursday morning. And don't forget the free breakfast, uh, <laughs> Farm Bureau breakfast, the middle morning from 8 to 10, and all the other good food and exhibits at Farm Fest. It's coming faster than we think, I, I believe. So uh, another good Farm Fest year. And if people want to get in touch with you, ask any questions, maybe uh, get on the mailing list for your Focus on Ag newsletter that comes automatically, how do we best do that? Uh, they can just send me an email at kent.tc at minstarbank.com. Or they can go to the MinStar Bank website and access the information there. All right. Have a happy 4th, Kent. Thanks for talking to us today on Talk of the Town. We certainly appreciate it. Well, you too. And uh, have a pork chop on a stick or a burger <laughs> on a grill and support our farmers. Absolutely. We'll do that. We'll talk to you soon.